Westmount, what a morning of worship already. Let's just continue that worship. Grab your Bible and turn in it with me to Romans chapter 5. We close this chapter today, Romans chapter 5. If you're visiting with us, a, a warm Lord's Day welcome to you. Glad you're here. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in front of you, and the rack's in front of you. You'll see one there. And turn to the book of Romans, the fifth chapter. We open up and arrive at this final section here in Romans this morning. Romans 5. This portion of the letter has been contrasting two humanities. The humanity of death and the humanity of life. That's been our study these past three weeks. We've seen here in Romans 5, the humanity of death is a humanity in Adam. All humanity created in Adam, thus present with Adam in the garden, as he stood as our representative. As such, in the garden, in Adam, all humanity sinned. And from that original sin, death reigned in all humanity, as we saw and studied. However, that may be the default humanity for all mankind. It may be that, but it is not necessarily the terminus humanity for all of us. No. We've also seen here the humanity of life, a humanity in Christ. We really began to see this last time. A humanity comprised of all those, verse 17, look at it, who receive, who receive the abundance, the grace, the gift, the righteousness. For those that receive, they have a new humanity in Christ. He is head. And yes, for those receiving the gracious gift of Christ, he is their new representative. He stands for those in him. He is the head of the new humanity, which is a humanity, one of life. And as we began to see last week, for those in Christ, this is what is counted. Look at verse 15. The grace of God by the grace right, of that one man, Jesus Christ, by his grace, the grace that is Christ. 16. Justification, you see that right standing before God, justification in the wake of many trespasses. Verse 17, grace reigning, look at that kingdom language, grace reigning in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And as we pick it up and continue in verse 18 today, and look at the final few verses here, Paul will bring this contrast to a head. Humanity of death, humanity of life, and he's going to bring this to a head with a recap and a closing emphasis. So let's begin now with a final opening look at the entire passage before us. Let's look at it starting in verse 12. This is what's been in view. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, we ask through Christ our Lord that you would teach us. You have opened access through him. We have peace with you through him. Saved and sanctified in him, Lord. And now we ask through him, by way of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would instruct us in this text. Lord, we submit to you this morning. May it be only your words we hear. May we leave this place not only changed, but willing, Lord, to apply what you've taught us. We ask in your son's name. Amen. Let's look at it again, 18 to 21. As we consider this little snapshot as a part of a whole, through one man, look at it, Adam. What in Adam? Condemnation, disobedience, the reign of death. Through one man, Christ, look at it, justification, obedience, the reign of life. All of us reside under one of those humanities. Either Adam is your head or Jesus Christ is your head. That's it. And beloved, as we've been doing these few weeks, I urge you today to seize this opportunity in Romans 5, in God's word, and consider your own humanity. Consider your own humanity. These verses will help you and help us to that end as we consider the humanity of life. So let's begin with verses 18 and 19, and they serve as our first point this morning, which is this, the obedience of Christ. The obedience of Christ. Let's look again at verse 18. Let's consider this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. In one sense, and maybe you've grabbed this already, Paul is restating what he did back in verse 16. Did you see that? Where he said, look at verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. And then this, look at it. For the judgment following one trespass brought what? Condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You see the same essence there, right? The one trespass leading to condemnation. One trespass leading to judgment rendered. One trespass leading to a guilty verdict over Adam's humanity. That's the reign. Through one trespass. And one act of righteousness... Conversely, leads to justification in life. Look at it. This is here, when we think of that one act of righteousness leading to justification in life, this is legal pardon. Let's not miss the legal aspect here. This is right standing before God. This is a not guilty verdict for all those, and note this now, in Christ's humanity. That is through the one act of righteousness. It's restated here, so 16, 18, really pulling the same thing out. But a couple other aspects are here in this verse that we need to pull out, that go further than verse 16. First, for one, we see the expression here, and I think 
You've probably caught it already and have a question for it. All men. You see, all men on both sides. Of course, we understand on one side with Adam, we understand how Adam's trespass led to condemnation for all men. We have little issue with that, I trust, especially after studying this chapter. That is, all men without exception, right? All men without exception, all humanity condemned. Why? Because all men were found where? In Adam, in the garden, as Adam sinned. That defines the humanity of Adam. But you're asking this morning, how does Jesus' one act of righteousness lead to justification in life for all men? As you look at the words on the page, that's what you're asking. Does this mean that all men without exception will receive justification in life? Maybe you're asking that. Is that what I just read? Is this verse teaching universal salvation? Is this saying, now here's the key, we wouldn't say it that way. That's far too heretical initially. But is this saying, let's soften it a little bit, that, wait a minute, we're all going to be okay in the end. Is that what this verse is teaching? Well, it is true, beloved, that some people do believe that. You know that. Not just lay people, but listen, church people believe that. Again, I was sobered this week. It feels like every week reading so-called theologians that teach just that. And let me be clear that we're all going to be okay in the end. All humanity without exception. And if we do not think here, if we do not stop and actively engage the mind that we've been given with the enlightenment that's been given, we can fall guilty to that same heresy because you know what? It makes us feel better, doesn't it? That Everyone is just going to be okay. And it's false teaching and it's false thinking. And by the way, yes, we may not say it. In fact, if we're wanting to be sensible around other people, we dare not say it, but we really want to believe it, don't we? That maybe here is a verse, finally, that confirms we will indeed all be okay in the end. The problem is, this is one verse. And it does not say what we want it to. More on that in a moment. Let's just leave that for a moment. We're going to come back to the verse. Let's work our way into it. Plus, the Bible says in many other places, here's your first cue, that mankind is not going to be okay in the end. That would be the rousing testimony throughout Scripture, isn't it? Mankind is not going to be okay. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone is going to be okay in the end. In fact, he'll tell some to depart from him. The book of Daniel teaches us at the time of the end, all will rise from the graves. Everyone will rise from the grave and head to one of two places, either everlasting life or everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, 1 to 2. So in other words, not everyone will be okay in the end. Closer to home, how about this very letter we've been studying? Turn to chapter 1. As we now start to work our way into the context here, verse 18, For the wrath of God, that doesn't sound okay, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? By their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Turn to chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. In other words, not everyone's going to be okay. More, do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, you, O oh man, won't be okay. Chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And then look at this. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And we've looked at that. That's being held accountable to God. That's not standing before God and God saying, you know what? I'm just letting you all off because that's the kind of God I am. 
But we want to believe that, don't we? Because honestly, that makes us feel good. So you rightly say, so if all men will not be okay in the end, what does all men mean here in verse 18? Now that's a good Berean biblical response that's engaging with the text. As one of my seminary professors always told us, all, the word all, like all words in the Bible, always has what? A context. We read in context, right? We read everything in context, and certainly the Bible, indeed it does. Look at the verse just before it. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. Ah, stop there. There's your limiter, isn't it? Who are all men? Those who receive the abundance of grace. It's right there in the verse just before. Right? They are the ones that receive the free gift of righteousness. They reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So clear. So clear. Those who receive. There's a condition there, a limit, a boundary on those in this humanity, and we've been tracking with it in this study, have we not? Those who receive all humanity, those who receive. Paul can use the term all men rightly in verse 18, because in verse 17, he's just defined the boundaries of all men. Do you see that? In Adam is all humanity, defined in verse 12. In Christ is all those who receive him, defined in verse 17. By the way, defined in chapter 4, isn't it? We're not all of Abraham, are we? You say, well, ethnically not. But those who look to Father Abraham are those who look to him by what? Faith. There's a limiter. There's a limiter. Thus, we track with Paul here. We could rightly restate verse 18 this way. And this is if we're engaging with this text. It could rightly say this. Therefore, look at verse 18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men in Adam... So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men in Christ. Very clear in context, and we're not betraying anything there, just clarifying, right? Again, we must read the Bible rightly, not conveniently. One more truth to extract here. Look at verse 18, the one act of righteousness, the middle of verse 18. In verse 16, Paul referenced more broadly the gracious gift by Christ which we commented on, was more than one act. Do you remember that last week? We said it was more than one act, a whole life, a whole person of Christ. Paul will return to that idea in verse 19. But here the apostle zeroes in on one aspect of Christ's life, his death, specifically calling it that one act of righteousness, that one act, Christ's death, is indeed the culminating act of Christ's life. And the Gospels show us this. That is why Christ came, isn't it, beloved? Christ came to die. That's why he came. That's the capstone act. And that coming, that dying, was not just an act that the Son of God independently thought would be very helpful to humanity. Church, it was an act of righteousness that, listen, was an act of submission. We need to frame this rightly. It was an act of righteousness that was itself an act of submission. Let's look at this. Christ came, he took on humanity in submission, in obedience to the Father's will. That's why he came, and that's how he came, taking on flesh. That first and foremost is what makes it righteous, because it's obedient submission, right? To the Father. Obedience to God and his will is the content of righteousness, and we need to grab this. 
Now we're really drilling into righteousness. Not just doing things that you think God would like. This is doing things in obedience to what God says and who he is. That's righteousness. Now we're going to turn to a few places to confirm this, but let's go to one place. Jeremy's taken us there already this morning. A wonderful head start. Philippians 2, turn there. Let's unpack a bit what we just read this morning at the table. Philippians 2, and let's pick it up in verse 5 and read it again. Again, we've looked at this already. Now remember the context here. When Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, the point of this letter, as opposed to, say, Romans, is not to give a theological treatise, right, on the incarnation, but Paul uses the incarnation to say, hey, I hear you two Philippians, Judea and Syntyche, you're not getting along, and maybe there's a bigger rift going on in Philippi. He says, listen, you need to look to the one who your name is in. Christ is the example. And he's going to give the example of Christ's condescension in his humility. Pick it up in verse 5. So in other words, Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now look at the example here. And what I want you to see is this uh, flowing submission coming out of these verses. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How did he do that? Did he stop being God? No. Subtraction by addition, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, and that's taking on humanity, said three times, he humbled himself, look at this, by becoming obedient, and here's the capstone, to the point of death, even death on a cross. See that? The death of Christ, look at it right there in verse 8, the cross, the atonement that purchased our redemption. That is obedience, but note this, that's capstone obedience, and we would say this one aspect, the most important aspect, but really one aspect of obedience. Theologians will call this the passive obedience of Christ. What do they mean by that when they say this? This is helpful. This is Jesus receiving death willingly. Jesus laying down his life volitionally. This is the passive obedience of Christ. This is Jesus submitting himself to the penal demands of the law. In other words, someone, something needs to pay the price for this sin. Christ passively, willingly does that. Now, That, of course, let's be clear, is the cornerstone of our redemption and salvation, the cross. However, that's not the only sense of Christ's obedience. I pray we can get a hold of this this morning. If it were, I want you to think for a moment. If it were, and that's all Christ accomplished at the cross, was paying that price, it'd be akin to hitting a big reset button, wouldn't it? I've just hit reset. Let's see how you do next time. A death that allowed a restart. Now, in one sense, love and the atonement resets and restarts. So we don't want to miss that. However, let me start with this simple way to at least express it. If we restart with the same ability and apparatus, what happens? Only time before we do the same thing. More, though, more than that, that's just true, but more, and this is really getting at what's going on in this obedience, or obedience. God's law and the penalty is not just penal, or punitive. It's not just that someone needs to pay the price. And here it is very practically, Westmount. God's law actually demands that we obey the law perfectly in every single way, right? 
So it's not just a penalty needs to be paid. Here it is, Westmont. This is what you need for a life in Christ, that someone would obey fully, perfectly, and completely, actively. Do you see that? Mercifully, then, the obedience of Christ was not just a passive endeavor. It was much more. It was also active. Let's look at verse 19. Turn back to Romans 5. So much more than just laying down a life. And we're not being trite by saying that. That was an immense thing. But there's more here. Look at verse 19. The text says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So rich. Look at this. By one man's disobedience to the one revealed law, the one transgression. Do you see that? Adam had one law, and he transgressed it. The many, because of that, the many, again, defined by verse 12, all humanity were made sinners. I want you to look at the word made there. That word made there means to bring into a certain state, to constitute, to appoint. Adam transgressed one law that was revealed to him and made the many sinners. He appointed them sinners through that one transgression. Grab it. So as humanity's head, he imputed guilt to all humanity. And thus we were established and constituted as sinners. Now we've covered that. We're not going back there. Only reminding ourselves of how we sinned in Adam, right? The key here, though, to remember is that Adam transgressed but one revealed law. Do you see that? He had one revealed law and he transgressed it. That, however, was not the case of the new Adam, Christ. He came later, didn't he? After the whole law of Moses was revealed. He came with a life where he articulated the great law of God. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, expressing even the finer bits, pulling out men's hearts, Sermon on the Mount. Thus, the obedience of Christ was not just in the wake of one law revealed, right? And this is important. Christ came after so much of the law of God was revealed to humanity. And here it is. And a law, all of it, that humanity was called to obey. Do you see that? Every human being was called to account to obey that law. And then, if you're tracking and say, well, that's a problem. We have enough trouble with one law, don't we? Let alone a whole table of the law of God. We cannot. And thus, Christ came not just to clarify or expound it, but here it is, Matthew 5, 17. Christ came to what? Fulfill it. He came to live it. It's a life, a living at age 12, where Jesus submitted obediently to his parents. Do you remember that? The text makes clear to say that. Luke 2.51, at a young age, this is all of life, well before the cross, as a child submitting himself obediently to his parents. Luke 2. It's a life at the beginning of his ministry where Christ made clear his life aim. Listen to John 4.34. My food... My sustenance, my aim and center is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you see that? My life is submission and obedience, Christ is saying. It's a life near the end where obedience was Christ's vivid priority. Who doesn't know Matthew 26, 39? Not my will, Christ said, but what? Yours. Let this cup pass through me, but I submit my will, child ministry garden to you. And it's a life, of course, of obedience that culminated with an obedient death, Philippians 2.8, the cross. It's a life of obedience. 
That death, a piece, a key piece of the obedience of Christ, but not given alone. Listen, Westmount, this is a whole life that Christ laid down and gave up. A whole life of obedience, a whole life fully, actively obeying the Father. And church, a whole life not just given, counted and imputed to us. Great picture of this in Isaiah 61, verse 10. Listen to this. This is your picture. It says the prophet. This is Yahweh through the prophet. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. He says, for he has clothed me. Look at the picture. With the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. In other words, what's the prophet saying? He's not just merciful with his said love, and we're going to look at that later. What does he do? He comes and he clothes those that are his with a robe of righteousness. He gives righteousness to his children. That's love. That's love. This is active obedience. This is the active obedience of Christ in what lies behind well-known texts like this. Andrew led us in this this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, church, for our sake, he made, by the way, same word in Romans, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, look at that, in Christ, if you're united with Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Saints, in Christ, if you are in Christ, you have become righteous. Listen, he has achieved and established and appointed righteousness in you. He has died for you, and you need that, but he's done more. He has given you a righteousness. It is a standing of righteousness before God that is accounted to you as pardon. In that sense, verse 19, we will be made righteous, right, on that day. So it very much has that future sense, but more However, this is also righteousness possessed now, experienced now, lived now. If God wasn't appeased, if his wrath wasn't appeased, you couldn't experience that joy, right? And that redemption that you do today. No passage grabs all of this and pulls it together like John 17. So let's turn there to close this point. John 17. This, of course, is at the end of Christ's life. He is about to go and he will pray in the garden and he will yield his will to the fathers. But I want us to pay attention to what he says here. Now, here's the key context. This is before the cross. Before the cross. And listen to this, John 17. I'll read the first five verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, so this is the entire discourse in the upper room, the Last Supper, when he had spoken them, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Then he says this, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There is your hint, by the way, eternal life is now. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work. Do you see that? How did he glorify the Father? Accomplish the work you gave me to do, all past tense. But we're not at the cross yet. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see that? At the end of a life of obedience, Christ turns upward and prays, on the eve of the cross, I accomplish the work and purchased eternal life, which is knowing you. Christ is looking on a whole life of obedience. 
that would be capped with the cross the next day. Brothers and sisters, this is what we need. Listen, a righteousness that does not just reset us to God, but a righteousness that satisfies us to God. That's what we need. Actively always, not just the legal demands, but the life demands of the law. And glory be to God that he's given us that righteousness in Christ. Beloved, in Christ we are made righteous. To be made right with God, yes, but also to have satisfaction with God here and now because of the righteousness of Christ, thus enabling us to enjoy eternity today. This is life in the obedience of Christ. Okay, one last part to cover here. That's one, the obedience of Christ. Two, let's look at the grace that is Christ as we close this chapter. Back to Romans, the grace that is Christ. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul returns to the law here, note the language, but here to amplify and close his point. Remember, Adam transgressed one revealed law. Christ perfectly obeyed all the law. So in light of that, Paul says the law came in to increase the trespass. It's an interesting way that Paul presents this theological truth. So let's unpack this a bit. One might rightly ask this. Imagine what Adam would have done with more law. I mean, this is the implication lying behind the argument, right? We know what Adam would have done with more law, right? If he had one revealed law and he disobeyed one law, we know what he'd do with more. Well, to give even a broader theological picture, not just theological instinct, but biblical account, I want you to consider the nation of Israel. The chosen nation, the chosen people of God, the recipients of God's law by Moses. And you say, well, they're God's chosen people. He chose them. How did they fare when all that law was introduced? How did they do? How did they make out? Well, the law for them only what? Increased the trespass, didn't it? That's what the law did for Israel. It increased it. Yes, their sin was trespass, amplified as trespass in light of revealed law. Because their sin now was against the revealed law of God. That's the key, right? That makes it a transgression. As such, the law came in and it most certainly led to many, many trespasses. We're staggered when we read the Old Testament account flowing from Exodus, aren't we? Just the stark violations of the law of God on the cusp of revelation, in Exodus especially. More revealed law only meant for Israel more transgression. That was the economy in the nation of Israel. Now that's one thing, but we must note here, the law coming in did more. It did more than that. That's one. The law came in and made sin to be known as sin. Paul is going to say this two chapters from now, Romans 7, 7, he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, what's Paul saying? Let's be clear here. It doesn't mean where there's no law, there's no sin. We covered that already. No, what he's saying is the law revealed his sin. It made him manifest to him. The law showed it. What he had by way of moral law within him, the law came, the law of Moses, and just amplified it, placarded it before him. It showed it to him. That's two and three, we would say this, the law revealed the seriousness of sin. Listen, as you think about the law given to Moses, I want us to think back to our study in Exodus. What is the most common penalty for transgression in the law? Do you remember? Death. Death for such things. Listen, let me remind you. You curse your parents. You curse your parents. Exodus 21, 17, the law says you shall be put to death. 
You commit adultery, Leviticus 20.10, both shall be put to death. You pick up sticks on the Sabbath, Numbers 15.35, the Lord says that man shall be put to death. How about idolatry? Even idolatry when it comes by way of another, when another tempts you to idolatry. Deuteronomy 13.6-9, God says that warns death. Adam was instructed on the penalty of death for his one law revealed, and later Israel would be informed on a whole table of law with the same penalty of death. Do you see it? Even more, as we studied last week, how much more grievous is sin when it is committed in the face of law? Listen, sin without law is still sin. Let's be clear on that. From Adam to Moses, death reigned because it's still sin, but it does not carry the weight of sin committed in the light of revealed law. That is what makes it trespass. That's what makes it transgression. And beloved, are we not struck by this? We must. As little Adam and Eve, that's what we are. As little Adam and Eve, what of us? What of us? We do not get it right with more law. We can't fence ourselves to righteousness by erecting more law. We do not get better with more tries. In the face of God's law, we only demonstrate one thing, and what is that? Our absolute inability to obey it. Is that not true? In fact, erecting more law only increases the trespass in our life, does it not? And when law comes in, It not only shows us something, it actually amplifies something else, and it's this, how dire our situation is. We sin more. Yes, look at the text. The law came in to increase the trespass. Now, you may rightly ask, okay, I think I see that. But Paul, what's the point, let alone the encouragement here? How is that an encouragement? I thought you are wrapping up one of the most encouraging chapters in your letter. How is that an encouragement? Why does Paul seemingly pause right before wrapping here to mention this in verse 20? Why, Apostle Paul, do you point out that the law increased the trespass and yet more? What of a purpose like that? The law given to increase the trespass? That actually leads me to despair. What is the point given us with the purpose of the law here? Well, here's Paul's point, and as always, Westbound, as always, we keep reading Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, what? Grace abounded all the more. Beloved, it is indeed an avalanche of compounding sin. When you're confronted with it, isn't it? It's an avalanche. You're standing underneath Niagara Falls, and no one's turning it off. Revealed in tidal ways with the knowledge of law and the seriousness of sin, it overwhelms you. But it doesn't matter. Look at the text. How much sin increases. Look at the text. Grace abounds what? All the more. I pray you see it. Sin can never, ever, ever outrun grace. It can't. You can't overtake it ever. Grace wins for the repentant every time. Every time grace wins. It runs faster, is bigger, it abounds more. Sin and trespass goes far, but grace goes farther. Case in point again is the nation of Israel. Prophet after prophet gave what? A message of what? Increase sin, abounding sin, compounding sin, and prophet after prophet on the heels of a judgment message gave what? Has said after has said after has said, abounding steadfast love. 
Grace wins every time for the repentant. Every time. The message of Isaiah, of Amos, Ezekiel, Micah. Can we count the prophets? Messages of sin increasing and abounding. Judgment and condemnation giving way to what? Grace abounding. Nor is this more vivid than in the book of Hosea. I hardly need to remind you of the context of what Hosea was asked to do. Go and take a wife who's a prostitute is a demonstration of how Israel had forsaken their Yahweh and sold themselves to other lords, so to speak. Let me pick up this account in Hosea 2. It's nothing short of staggering. Hosea 2, verse 7, She shall pursue her lovers, this is Israel, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. The groping in the dark for any other lord but Yahweh. Verse 9, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time. This is the omnipotent God. And my wine in its season, I will withhold. This is in judgment. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Verse 11, and I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths. In other words, those bits of happiness, Israel, I will take them away. Your happy moments and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given to me. In other words, you've misattributed them horizontally. I gave them to you. And because you're under judgment and condemnation, I will remind you who gave you those vines and fig trees. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the feast day of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord." By any other measure today, there would be a period there to say there is no recovering from that, right? That's the gavel that comes down in judgment to say it's over. But we keep reading verse 14. Therefore, connected to what we just read, therefore, behold, I, Yahweh says, will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak judgment to her, speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. She repents, comes back. As at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, when they were crying out to Yahweh, the heart is right to turn to Yahweh. And in that day, future time, declares the Lord, you will call me Israel, my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. This is repentance. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on the day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword, and war from the land, and it will make you lie down in safety. And then listen to this. This is nothing short of miraculous in verse 19. Listen carefully. And I will betroth you to me forever. May I remind you, Yahweh didn't come up for air to hear what Israel had to say. Judgment, condemnation, therefore I will betroth you. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in hesed and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Where sin increased in Israel, grace what? Found it all the more. This is our God, and we must behold him. He never changes. That same therefore, by the way, in verse 14 Connected without coming up for air between judgment, between sin and death and grace and mercy. It's the same thing found here in Romans. Look at verse 21. The law came in to increase the trespass, where sin increased grace amounted all the more connection, so that. Why? 
Grace abounding all the more, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Incredible. Remember Israel. Israel, your sin, its judgment, and a connective tissue to my grace and my mercy. In other words, your sin shows my grace and mercy. And where you sin, my grace is all the more. Same here. Look at it. So that sin and judgment increase, therefore, has said increases. Same purpose backdrop of sin and trespass as in Israel, as in the church. And against that backdrop of sin reigning in death, here's what abounds. Look at it. Grace. Grace, the favor of God on the absolutely undeserving. Who are we creatures that receive grace? Who are we? Grace, the gift freely bestowed. Grace reigning, look at verse 21, through righteousness. By the way, there it is coming together. Grace reigning through the obedience of Christ. Do you see that? This is how grace reigns because that's been imputed to you. You are robed in righteousness. Now grace can reign in you. It used to be death, but now it's grace reigning in you through that robe. Leading to what? Just life? Look at this. So where death reigns, life just meets it. Look at this. Death and life playing a cosmic tit for tat. No, as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. Do you see that? Eternal life. This outstrips this temporary age. Through who? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin reigned in death. Grace reigns not just in life, but eternal life. And where does grace reign? Now note the domain as we close. Or we should say, note who it reigns in as we close. Jesus Christ our Lord, through him and him alone. That is the grace that is Christ. Grace that reigns under, look, new headship. Grace that reigns in this life through Christ's righteousness and grace that reigns into eternal life through Christ himself. And so as you look at verse 21, hopefully you're reminded of verse 1. And you say this chapter ends how it started, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where we have peace with God through Christ, we now have grace reigning through Christ from beginning to end. Remember, through one man, Adam, beloved, came sin and sin through death, which spread. But through Christ, through one man, then we have been justified, made right in God's sight. We've learned that. Through one man, then we can rejoice in our sufferings, the audacity. We can rejoice in our sufferings because we know they have purpose and they actually lead to hope. Our sufferings galvanize our hope. Yes, even felt hope. Through one man, then, we are pardoned, not guilty, and by his obedience will be made righteous. And through one man, Westmount, we have experienced a humanity transfer. This is the grand message and theme of this chapter. Sin no longer reigns in our bodies. Grace does. Through one man, church, we have moved from death to life. And all of that new reality for you, given to you freely and graciously by God, listen, in his Son, in Christ. In him, and we need to stress this as we close, and only in Christ is life. It's found nowhere else. You have a transfer of your humanity nowhere else. Every other foundation is death, ultimately, because it flows from Adam. Saints, I do trust, this has been my prayer, that this is an encouragement to you today. As we close this great chapter, we need encouragement, don't we? I pray this is encouraging. 
Brothers and sisters, at some point during this season, I know you've been faced with your own Adamness or your own Eveness. I know it. I have too. You felt the sting of sin, and maybe you've even felt the sting of death in your life. Maybe. You're worn down. You sit here in this chair today and you're beat down. You indeed feel, you would say, you know what? I feel more death than life. I get what's going on here. I see it. But I actually, honestly, Jason, I just feel death, not life. We hardly need our ancestor, Adam, and his imputed guilt. That's enough, isn't it? But we do have that. But we continue to practically transgress at length on our own. Authors of our own destruction. Christian, listen. If you are a Christian, Adam is no longer your head. Do you know that? You have a new master. When we return to Romans 6, we're going to see what that means. You're still a slave, but you're under new ownership. Adam's no longer your head, and that means that death is no longer your humanity. You'd say, well, I don't feel it. Christian would say, well, sometimes we don't feel it, do we? But it doesn't mean it's not true. You have a new head, Christ, and a new humanity life. And listen, while Adam's humanity, and this is the glorious news, Adam's humanity was awful. But I want you to walk away today with this reality. It was reversible, right? What about Christ's humanity? If you're in Christ today, beloved, and I say this respectfully, please, it doesn't matter how you feel right now. No one can remove you from your righteousness in Christ. It's irreversible. You are complete, secure, and sound in Christ. So even though you struggle to feel it and you see it, and you struggle to grab onto it, to hold onto it at times, it doesn't mean that that's where you are, saints, and that's the glory. And by the way, why we need each other to remind ourselves of these truths, you are in Christ and you can never, ever, ever be moved. Can you hear that as you leave this place today? Later on, we'll enjoy time together. I want you to go into your week knowing you will never, ever, in Christ, ever, ever be moved, ever. You're complete in him. I believe, Westmount Saints, we can never be reminded of that enough. That's why we don't just pray it and preach it and read it. We sing it, which we'll do in a moment. But first, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for that truth. We we can never fully come to grasp in terms with the reality that we can never be moved in your Son, Jesus Christ. But it is true, Lord, and I do pray for all of us. I pray for me and all these saints here in this room that you would move us to feel it today, move us to be renewed in this truth today, so we can be reminded, Lord, that in your Son, we can never be moved. Oh, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.